I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to find truth in the midst of half-truths. I'm Aaron Bishop, here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey everybody. And today we are in Job chapters 4 and 5. So up to this point, we have got the introduction, what's kind of happening in the story of Job, the tragedy that befalls him, and we have had Job's initial lament. It's really the only word for it, is a lament, this this cry from the heart of absolute and utter despair. This week, we encounter the first of the three friends, well, four friends, that, although the fourth one isn't really said that he's a friend, he just kind of comes out of nowhere. But uh, we'll get to that later. But one thing I want everyone to remember as we hear this friend and as we look at how unhelpful this friend is, this friend loves Job. Right. He sat with Job for a solid week right. on an ash pile in silence. Right. So what he says may not comfort Job in any way. In fact, it kind of offends Job. In fact, it kind of adds to Job's turmoil. Right, it adds to Job's turmoil. But in the end, the friend still loves him, even though he's a bit incompetent in his support. Right. And uh, we need to recognize that all of these friends, they love Job. They're there for him. They're there to support him. They're there to help him through this. They just don't know how. And they don't really have all their their ducks in a row they don't they're not really truly on the same page of understanding of of god like job is they don't understand god and a lot of the things that they say and even that we'll see today they say things that are in fact truth about god in fact in other places of scripture we're going to see very similar things to what they say, mm-hmm. but they're taking it out of context. They are applying it in mis. They're they're applying it incorrectly, and that is such a common theme for us as people in our attempt to comfort, in our attempt to come alongside people. We all have a tendency to do this, right? Right, and what we're going to find in these friends are kind of like some archetypical responses to people who are in grieving. Um, We all want to comfort people who are hurting. Uh, I remember once I went to a funeral for an infant. Actually, she was a toddler. And I didn't know the father, but I knew the grandfather. And so I went there to support him. And 
I wanted to comfort him so badly. I wanted to make him feel better somehow, some way. I wanted to be able to just say those words that gave just that small bit of comfort. And I know that the words that I said, I don't remember exactly what they were, but I know that they didn't help. Right. Because they were kind of re pious religious words. And they weren't meeting the the father where he was. And it's so easy to do because we all want to help out. But when we come to a person that's in true pain, that's experiencing just vast trauma. There aren't words. There, there. You know, there really aren't. And, and that's the thing. I think so often we, as a, as a people, we tend to, because we desperately want to comfort, because we desperately want to say something that will help, inevitably end up saying the wrong thing. Right. Because in in times like this, oftentimes there just aren't words. And we need to take a page out of their first chapter and say, hey, let's just sit here in sackcloth and ashes and let it let there be silence. Right. Let there be discomfort. Let it be uncomfortable for all of us. And let it be painful and let it let it hurt. Let it right. just hurt. Let the pain be there because it's needed. Right. It, it is, unfortunately, the pain is needed. Um, it's like that old, uh, that old football movie, uh, what's the greatest thing about pain? It lets you know, let you're, you know alive. you're still alive. <laughs> so, yeah, or maybe that was an army movie. I it sounds remember. like an army yeah, movie, but I don't know movie. what it was. Um, but anyway, um, the pain is necessary. So let's go ahead and let's read. Job chapters 4 and 5, the first response of Eliphaz the Temnite. Job chapters 4 and 5. Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many. You have strengthened weak hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled and strengthened buckling knees. Yet now it has come to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Is not your piety your confidence, the integrity of your ways your hope? Reflect now, who being innocent ever perished, and where were the upright destroyed? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow harm reap them. By the breath of God they perish, by the blast of his anger they vanish. The lion may roar and the cub growl, but the teeth of young lions are broken. The mighty lion perishes for lack of prey, and the lioness cubs are scattered. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear caught a whisper of it. Amid unsettling visions of the night, when a deep sleep falls on men, dread and trembling seized me, and made my bones shake. Then a spirit brushed over my face, and the hair of my flesh stood on end. It stood still, but I could not recognize its appearance. A form was before my eyes, and I heard a murmur, a voice. Can a mortal be righteous before God, or a man pure before his Creator? If he puts no trust in his servants and accuses his angels of error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundations is in the dust— 
who are crushed before the moth. From morning until evening they are beaten into pieces, unnoticed they perish forever. Is not their tent cord pulled out so that they die without wisdom? Cry out now, will anyone answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? For resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His sons are far from safety, and crushed at the gate without a deliverer. The hungry consumes his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pants after their wealth. For evil does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born for trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God. I would lay my cause before God, who does great things beyond comprehension, wonders without number, who gives rain to the earth and sends water over the plains, who places the lowly on high and lifts mourners to salvation, who frustrates the plans of the crafty, so that their hands attain no success who catches the clever in their craftiness and thwarts the plan of the cunning. By day they encounter darkness and grope at noon as if it were night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the clutches of the mighty. So the helpless have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. Behold, happy is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of Shaddai, for he inflicts pain, but he also binds up. He injures, yet his hands also heal. From six calamities he will deliver you, even in seven no harm will touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You will be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and not fear when violence comes. You will laugh at violence and famine, and will not fear the beasts of the earth. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. You will know shalom in your tent, and you will take stock of your home and find nothing missing. You will know that your descendants will be numerous, your offspring like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in vigor, like sheaves of grain in its season. Behold, we have investigated this. It is true. Hear it and apply it to yourself. You just want to smack him. You're, you kind of do, and we'll get to that. But first off... Who knows where Temnon is? Yeah, not me. The Temanite. That's what Eliphaz is called, Temanite. So it's assumed that this is a place that uh, he is from. And the fact is that nobody knows where Temon is. It, it is a place that is has that's not found in any historical record. It's not found in anywhere except in the Bible so when referring lost. to this one guy. So completely lost to history. Who this is, where he's from, what kind of history background he has. So, but doesn't yeah. the Septuagint? The Septuagint, yeah, it does give further details of who these men were. Uh, it calls him the king of. Might have to look it up. Eliphaz of the children of Esau, king of the Themanites. So that is what the Septuagint adds to it: is that he was an Edomite. That's all we get. But that he was a king of the Themanites. Of the Themanites, right? Right. So, yeah, we don't really know. Who he is. Um, Daman is based off of. Yeah, just, just a proper name means absolutely nothing in Hebrew. Okay. It's just the name of a place. It's, yeah, located east of Idumea or Edom. 
So, all right. Uh, so yeah. So the way that he starts, it's it's kind of it's kind of rushed. So they've been sitting there in this ash heap for seven days, and finally, you know, Job opens his mouth and laments the day he was born in a very poetic way. And Eliphaz hears this. He takes it in, and he starts with, uh, "If I were to speak to you, would that be okay?" In essence. Yeah, and that's and a, he, that's an okay that's way an to okay start. That's okay way it. to start. But then he doesn't wait for an answer. At least we don't see one in the text. He says, "Well, but but who's able to withhold their speech?" Uh is is he starts with, "Can I speak with you?" and then he kind of doesn't let Job answer. He says, "Never mind. I can't withhold what I need to say. I've got to say this. I've just got something I've got to say to you, Job." And so that's how he begins. And but when he starts out, he's like, "Look, man, you have been the encourager right. for other people going through this. Right. So he kind of says, what would you say to yourself? Right. Preach to yourself, Job. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad way to start it out. Right. Like, how would you encourage yourself? What would you say to yourself in this time? Right. Are you able to practice what you preach? And then he says... Isn't your piety, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? All of this stuff is okay. He's doing well. This is not a problem. But then he jumps into, So, whoever was good and then died. It doesn't happen. So he just starts leveling accusations. Well, in the the opening, it, it makes sense. But at the same time, it's not helpful to a person who's hurting. It's like saying, doctor, heal thyself, which is is kind of impossible in many cases. When you're stuck in the situation, just preaching to yourself or taking your own advice is hard. It's next to impossible. It is hard. But it also, at least I have been in the situations and thought this way in that moment okay, what would I say to someone else? And then sat back and go, is that actually helpful? And then oftentimes it actually is. You can actually gain some some benefit from that. Now, I would, I would venture to say it's in times of maybe not extremes, like we're right. dealing with right. with Job here. Right. But it can, in fact, be helpful in certain circumstances. But in Job's situation, I'm not sure that it would be. Right. When someone's going through the, just that, that depth of despair, uh, healing yourself, kind of being able to speak to yourself, he doesn't want to live. He doesn't, mm-hmm. want, he doesn't want to get better. He does, doesn't want to preach to himself. He doesn't, he'd rather just die. He kind of, sort of wants to wallow. Yeah. He wants to wallow in it, which is understandable, because I'm pretty sure we've all kind of been there Yeah, when we get to a place of darkness, and we just kind of want to wallow around in the darkness. And we're not ready to give it up. We're not ready for the pain to go away. And this guy's saying, look, you've lifted others up. Pick your pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and let's go. Let's do this. And uh, Job isn't really ready for that yet. Yeah. And and then he goes into basically a soft accusation. 
you did something wrong, Job. Or your kids did. Or your kids did something wrong. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's sin here. There's a lack of integrity here. You've offended God in some way. You've brought this on yourself. Which, for the ancient world, was a super common thought. The idea that people suffered because they had offended the gods. Quite frankly, it is not just in the ancient Near East world. I was going to get there. I was going to get there. But uh, the idea of uh, things like the water trial were an example of this. If they're innocent, then the gods will obviously help them. You know, we can put them in a water trial and their innocence will show through because the gods will come to their aid because the, you know, the bonds will be cut or their hands will slip out of it or, or whatever, mm-hmm. proving their innocence. Right. And he's operating from that basic mindset of if you're innocent, then God's going to deliver you out of it. And we see here, that's not the case. We see throughout the New Testament, that's not the case. Right. We see throughout the Old Testament, that's not the case. Innocent people suffer and die all the time. Innocent people are accused of things. Innocent people are sold into, sold slavery. into slavery. Innocent people are beaten and, and abused and go through great tragedies and, and suffer in great ways. It's not all cut and dried as... Eliphaz wants to make it, and as we so often want to make it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so easy to do, because frankly, the Bible gives us the ammunition to do it. One example of this is found in Proverbs 19.23, where it says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. And that's just one of many examples where mm-hmm. it's the Bible seems to say that if you fear the Lord, if you do what's right, if you do righteousness and justice and love mercy and so on and so forth, then you won't be harmed or hurt. Nothing bad will ever happen in your life. And that is and that, not the case. And that appeals to our sense, our personal sense of justice. Right. It appeals to our personal understanding of right and wrong. Right. And it does not stack up to how God actually operates in this world. And that's a really, really hard thing for a lot of people to understand. Right. Right. And and so I guess the question kind of comes then is what do we do with verses like Proverbs 19.23? When it clearly states that if you fear the Lord, it leads to life and you'll rest satisfied and you won't be visited by harm. Um, I think that it does, in fact, lead to life. But that doesn't necessarily mean the individual. True. Okay, good point. I think that it does, in fact, lead to rest. But you can have rest in a foxhole in a war. Okay. You can have rest in the midst of turmoil. Right. And it does... What was the last one? Harm. He will not be visited by harm. And it depends on your definition of harm. <laughs> right. Right. Because I, I'm i not... I'm genuinely not just trying to explain it away mm-hmm. or placate with that. But we have very different definitions of what rest is 
to what God's definition of rest is. We have different definitions of life and harm. And we don't see all ends. We don't understand the mind of God. Right. And we have to consider the words of Yeshua when he says that uh, the ones that God has given me, no one can pluck from my hand and they will not be they will not be led to harm or they, it's something along those lines. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's the idea that the enemy just can't touch you when you're in his hand. But that doesn't mean that, doesn't that, mean you, that you won't, won't ever suffer. suffer. Right. Or else why in the world did Yeshua suffer? Right. Or Paul or Peter or John or, right. or any of them. Why, why, the, why the heck were they all martyred for that matter? Which is a very big struggle. And that's, that's one of the things we have to do when we read the Bible. So we have to kind of struggle through these seemingly contradictory ideas. Um, but one thing that we need to remember, the book of Proverbs isn't a book of doctrine. Right. The book of Proverbs, specifically the book of Proverbs and, and other places, is a book of sayings of the wise. It's a book of wisdom. It doesn't mean that everything that is said in the book is a proclamation from God on high. It means that it leads wisdom. And the outcomes that it describes aren't always exact. The, the exact outcomes that every single person that exists experiences. Right. But if everybody followed them, or those who do follow them, the probability is that they're going to land on the better side of these situations. I mean, we could we could maybe read it as something like 60% of the people who fear the Lord will never come to harm <laughs> throughout history, you know? And so the people who lived through 50s and 60s and so on and so forth, they never came to harm. They, they lived their entire lives without any true oppression, any true harm, any true... Other generations, not so much. Right. Um, and maybe it's a grand scheme thing, but it's more, it is, it is, we have to remember it is just wisdom literature. These books of wisdom literature, they are not prescriptions exactly. for how the world works. Exactly what I was going to say. It's not a prescription. It's not do these things. This is the result. Right. This isn't a formula. Right. This is statistically speaking, you know, or even, you know, this is the path to life. Not all are going to get there. Some are going to die along the way, but it's still the path. Right. Yeah, so this this idea that we have it all figured out because we know the Bible, and because the Bible says A plus B equals C in the book of Proverbs or the book of Psalms or in the midst of the Torah and blessings and curses or something like that, doesn't mean that's going to be what you experience as an individual human. Especially when we're talking about the blessings and the curses of the Torah. Well, right. Because those are all, national promises. They are not talking to individuals. They are talking to an entire community. Right. And we can't and sit there and... they're talking to an entire community that's under blessing. One person doing what the Torah says does not bless the entire community. Right. It has to be the entire community working together to, for those blessings to kind of come about. Exactly. Exactly. That's something that we have to be careful of doing when we try to comfort those who are mourning, those who are, who are going through trauma or grief. So we can't come in and say, well, you know, you kind of deserved it 
because we know we know for a fact God only punishes the wicked. So, we don't know that for a fact. In fact, we know the opposite of that. What I'm saying is it's easy to say that. And uh, I have to admit, when I was very early on in this journey of being a, a pastor and congregational leader, I actually did kind of resort to trying to comfort someone who's going through trauma. In fact, it wasn't that they were going through trauma, it was that there was a potential that they were going to go through trauma. With the uh, idea that, well, the Bible says if you love God and if you keep his commands, then these things won't come upon you. And then two days later, it came upon them. Right. And it hurt. And it probably hurt worse because I had said, well, this won't come upon you because the Bible says this. It's in clear black and white. We can obviously hold on to these truths and these promises from God that this is not going to come upon you. And then it happened. And then I have to back better. And then suddenly there's this, this rift between the person who's suffering and me, this person who's supposed to be there, being there, a spiritual guide and shepherd, because I didn't know how to handle it. I handled it like Eliphaz and completely blew up in my face. Another thing that we need to avoid when going through or trying to comfort someone is what we see beginning in verse 12. So how many of you have heard this? God has given me a word to speak to you. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going through something right now. You're hurting right now. But the Spirit is really impressed upon me that you need to hear what I have to say. Well, that's kind of where Eliphaz goes at this point. Well, there's two takes to that. There is two takes to it. My um, personal opinion on this one is that he truly is met with an accusing spirit. So the the idea that Rebecca is uh, proposing is that these friends are a continuation of the testing of Job. And that the enemy is now using his friends, coming to them and giving them words and messages and appearing to them as spirits and so on and so forth to tell Job things that's going to hurt him and break him even further. He can't touch Job's life, but he can touch his friends, and he can touch those who are speaking into Job's life. And he can continue the torment. Right. And and draw it out even further. And I, I think that we're both kind of explaining that to different degrees, whether it's the enemy actually a, a demon coming to a person and, and appearing or planting thoughts in a person's head, or just a person, you know, saying, well, my words might go over better if I say they come from God. Mm. Or even they just have a really good feeling inside that this so is they, from God. And so they feel like, well, if it's that strong a feeling, then it must, must be from God. Right. So whether it's the person's own mind or whether it's a demonic spirit that's influencing them, the result is the same. Mm-hmm. It hurts the relationship. Because you're coming in claiming you have authority from on high, that you have this wisdom from on high that's going to help. And then you give your wisdom, and it doesn't help. This right here is perhaps one of the most damaging things that a person can do. It's this, and we see this all through Eliphaz. He's got this veneer of religiosity over everything that he says. He is the religious one. He knows how God works. He knows how the spirit world works. He knows how all of this is going to happen. In fact, he even talks to God. He talks to spirits. He's got insight. He's got revelation. He's got knowledge. And these things 
Well, he's going to leverage those to help Joe because his friend is in need. But it doesn't help. No, it doesn't In fact, help. it makes it worse because now he's implying that, well, quite frankly, he's implying that the Holy Spirit came to him and told him that man cannot be righteous before God. And Which is true to a degree. But God himself said in chapter 1 right. that he was righteous. Consider my righteous servant. Right. It also again, accuses God. He says, if he puts no trust in his servants and he accuses his angels of error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay? He's... He's painting an evil picture of God. No, he's not painting an evil picture of God. What he's what he's pointing out is the mythology of the, the fall from heaven. God's even accused his own angels of disobeying him. And we're we're definitely not angels. And so obviously who are we to think that we're going to escape God's accusations and his righteous judgment? And then that's obviously what this is. It's righteous judgment. And it's not it's not righteous judgment. It's something else. It's something. <laughs> it's something else. Yeah. It's it's life. It's it's tragedy. It's the things that we all face, and in the end, we can kind of trace it back to original sin, but we can't necessarily trace it to individual sin. Right. Um, it's like the uh, you know the rabbis that came to Yeshua and. Um, in the Gospels and say, uh, this man was born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? That he obviously did something wrong in order to be born blind. Or mm-hmm. his parents did something wrong. And Yeshua was like, no, no, that's not it at all. He was born blind so that the power of God can be revealed through him. Mm-hmm. There are other reasons for people to go through tragedies. And uh, we need to recognize that. And then Eliphaz goes to... So repent, cry out, which of the holy ones will will you turn to? He continues to accuse, but he basically goes to repent. And then there's this verse, chapter 5, verse 7. Yet man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. That is such an iconic phrase. People have used that for centuries. I don't think I've ever heard that. Really? Yeah. I, I've never heard anyone use that as a... have. Hmm. Interesting. He's basically, he said, obviously you've done something wrong. In fact, the Spirit came to me and revealed to me that you did something wrong. God doesn't treat people this way unless they've done something wrong. And so now, go before God, plead your case, seek Him. That's the only way you're going to get this to stop. You have to go... Fall before God and repent of whatever you did. Mm-hmm. Only then, and only then, will He relent from what's happening here. And then He says these beautiful things about God. Mm-hmm. But as for me, I would seek God. I would lay my cause before God, who does great things beyond comprehension, wonders without number, who gives rain to the earth and sends water over the plains who places the lowly on high and lifts mourners to salvation, who frustrates the plans of the crafty so that their hands attain no success, who catches the clever in their craftiness and thwarts the plan of the cunning, 
Day by day they encounter darkness and grope at noon as if it were night, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the clutches of the mighty. So the helpless have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. So again, he's, he's preaching the same gospel, though. He's preaching this prosperity gospel. He really God is. is great, and he does these innumerable and unsearchable things, and he is a righteous judge, and when people do wrong, well, then they will meet with a bad end. And when people do right, well, they'll be saved from the sword. You won't fear famine. You won't feel, fear the sword. You won't fear, you won't fear theft. You won't fear anything because you'll know God is on your side because you are righteous and you've done good. And God doesn't hurt the righteous. There's no, that's just not him. It's not in his character. And he's preaching a prosperity type gospel. The things that he's actually saying in this section are not incorrect. True. On the surface. On the surface. And I think that's one of the main points we're trying to make here is that on the surface, the things are true, but in reality, they're half-truths. Right. What I think is so interesting is the way that he starts is, uh, who is as great as God? And he does great and unsearchable deeds. And yet I know exactly what's happening here. God does these things we can't possibly know. And yet in this case, in suffering, we know exactly what's happening. And it's this dichotomy of thinking you've got God paid, that you've got him pinned down, that you know what he is, who he is, and how he's going to act in any given situation. If I do A, then God does B. The That logical train of thought that we all want to have, we all want to think about God. And as we're going to find out, it's not necessarily true. Yes, he does unsearchable things. In fact, God leverages that a whole lot at the end of the book, mm-hmm. the unsearchable things that he does. And he points to Job and says, what about you? Do you know my ways? Can you can you tell me how I did these things? Who are you to question what's happening to you now? Which I would think would be hard to hear for a man who is going through such tragedy. Right. But at the same time, it is absolute truth. When these terrible things happen, we can't blame God for it. And we can't assume that it's because of our own unrighteousness or our own wickedness. Now, should we stop? Should we contemplate? Should we think back on our lives? Is there sin? But then we should do that at all times. Right. We should be constantly searching ourselves for that sin. And those questions aren't inherently wrong. You certainly shouldn't start with it. Right. You shouldn't lead out of the gate with, have you done something wrong? Do you deserve this? <laughs> right. Right. You did it but to yourself, they buddy. are genuinely valid questions to ask. Right. And that's- They're just not. Yeah, they're definitely not the first ones you should ask. And that's that's, that's part of the, the revelation here of Eliphaz, is that he's leading with this soft accusation of Job's character. This, well, we know how God works, and it's your fault. Um, it's, it's a way of victim shaming or victim blaming. And a person who's in a place of victimhood, who's been hurt, who's in that tragedy and trauma, they don't need... To More. be victim blamed. Yeah, they don't need to be blamed that it's their fault they're a victim. Um, that That is one of the worst things you can possibly do to a person who's hurting, even if they are to blame. 
even if they are the idiot who walked out in front of traffic, got hit by a car, and now they can't walk. Even if they're the ones who's to blame, you don't victim blame while they're in the midst of this initial tragedy. There may come a time for it, but not at the beginning. And frankly, if it's a situation like that where they know they're the idiot that did it, chances are you don't need to say it. Right. It's only if they have... The only time it could possibly be helpful is if it has gone on for an extremely long period of time, does not seem to be getting better, seems to be getting worse because of the continued bad choices of the person. And then it's like, hey, let's, let's see if we can make some better choices. Right. It's not... It's still not, well, look, you just did this to yourself. Even in the worst case scenario, that is not going to be helpful. Finger pointing and I told you so's never solve anything. And there's also a flip side to that. There's another scenario where kind of broaching the subject could be important to a person healing Long after, it's when they be when they continue to accuse others of their tragedy, of their fault. It's someone else's fault. Someone else's fault. It's someone else's fault. It's someone else's fault. It's someone else's fault. And it's always someone else. Someone else. Someone else. It's never anything that they've ever done. And in cases like that, it can sometimes be a good idea, especially if they're not getting better, to sit them down and say, "Hey, take a look inside." Right, but again, this is a genuine attempt at coming alongside and right. helping, not in an accusatory way. Right. And so the way that Eliphaz ends, uh, you can kind of tell that he doesn't really understand grief. He's never quite been through it himself. Because he, he kind of ends with, you know what? If you repent and God relents, he's going to reward you and you're just going to have more in the future. It's all going to be okay. And you're going to be better off in the end than you are right now. You're going to have more kids. You're going to be better off than you were before. And that is also extremely unhelpful. It is not something that a person wants to hear who's mourning the loss of those who are loved by them. They're they're mourning some great tragedy. They they don't want to hear, oh, in the future, you'll have other kids to occupy your mind. They're just going to hear, oh, great, more kids to die early. Oh, great, another wife to accuse me and cast me down. Oh, great, more things to be stolen. They're they're in that place of of self-pity, which, for grief, that's a natural place to be. Mm-hmm. And you can't bring them out of it by saying, well, just wait. It's going to be better in the future. You can have more kids. Right. Right. That is the worst thing to say to a person who's lost a kid. You can have yeah. more kids. You know, just it, it, it'll be okay. No, it'll never be okay. And, the the and tragedy, the loss will always be with a person. And no matter how many kids you end up having after the loss of one, it doesn't replace the one. Right. 
Right. That is so true. And that is something that, again, it may sound comforting to us when we're trying to comfort someone else, especially if we've never experienced that great trauma or grief ourselves, and we're trying to help someone through it. It may sound comforting to us because we can look past the end of our nose and we can look into the future. And we've seen people get through grief and trauma and come out the other side fairly okay. But we don't see the pain that still lingers with the person who's gone through it. We don't see the hurt. We don't see the loss, that hole in their existence that's never really truly been plugged by anyone or anything, regardless of how many more friends they get, regardless of how many more children, more goods, more whatever, the the loss, the feeling of betrayal, the feeling of of Vulnerability. vulnerability never really goes away. It dulls, but it doesn't go away. Right. And then he ends with this super pious statement. Behold, we have investigated this. It is true. Hear it and apply it to yourself. So mine says, hear it and know for yourself. It's almost as if Eliphaz is trying to preach Job's own doctrine back to Job. Hmm. It's as if Job holds this own doctrine himself. Because we do see that Job's understanding of God does shift through the book. His, His assumptions of who God is, he starts with, Preach to yourself. You've done it before. You've preached to others. So I'm going to do it for you now. I'm going to preach to you the things that you have been preaching all this time. Hmm. And that you is know a possibility. It. You know it, Job. You've preached it. You've heard it. And now I've told you it. And it just makes you kind of stop and slow down and go, oh, be careful what you preach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> because it might be visited back on you and you might find out just how kind of worthless it is. That is a possibility that I'd never seen before. This may be the beginning of disabusing Job of his own thoughts of God, of of his own assumptions of who God was, because he had this idea, and now he's hearing it as someone who's in this place, and knowing himself, and knowing his own past, and his history, and his thoughts, and his emotions, and and now he's hearing it from that side of it. And he's recognizing, oh. Yeah, I really messed up there. Yeah. Which is not a good place to be. Especially when you're in the midst you're of you're in grief. the midst of trauma. <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's Eliphaz. That's his, Eliphaz's initial response to Job. It's not totally wrong. There are some falsehoods throughout it. His way of depicting God as kind of the Proverbs type of God that... If A, then B. Yeah, it's is, a formulaic. Is a bit, yeah, is a bit off. But not a single bit of it is helpful to Job. Right. And that's really the one of the great tragedies of this story. And we're going to see that in all three of his friends, that none of them really know how to address Job's trauma, how to address Job where he's at. And that's where we need to to look at this so closely because we can on some small level or a big level identify ourselves in Job, but we can also identify ourselves in Eliphaz and in all of the other guys because, and even in Job's wife, Mm -hmm. because we've been there too. 
Right. And it's super common to identify with Job. It really is to, to identify well, with the suffering and the pain. Yeah, it's it not is. As and it's common. also, and it's also easier to see yourself as the righteous guy who just suffering had a whole unjustly. bunch of stuff yeah. unjustly happen to him. And it makes us feel better about our suffering when we're picturing ourselves in that position. Right. But when we look at the, at the friends and go, Oh crud, I've been that guy. Right. When we Oh crud, I've done that. Yeah, when we can see ourselves in Job's friends and not just in Job, we can begin to have a breakthrough moment in our own lives. Right. And uh and that's super important. Um so we see what not to do here, how not to approach it. Don't come with a word from the Lord, don't preach your doctrine to a person. And don't remind them that everything's going to be better in the future, that there's or sunny and golden it's days be ahead. Okay. No. But the, it, what you kind of need to do to a person who's in this place of loss and trauma is say, it hurts. It's always going to hurt. It's always going to be with you. It will dull some, but I promise you, you will smile again. And that's about as much as you could possibly say to a person who's in this situation right there. Is is you're gonna find joy at some point in the future, but you're always gonna have this hurt and this pain with you. It will not go away completely. It'll but get I'm still to gonna bear. be here. Right. It will get easier to bear as you as you get used to it. Right. But uh yeah. And frankly, that's about all you can say to a person, um, as opposed to what Eliphaz tries to say. And I would say that that's probably the counter argument, the counter thing that we should say. Uh, Eliphaz says all that he says, that's, that's all wrong. Instead of what Eliphaz says, we need to just say, man, this really it sucks. sucks. It's and awful. It's, going it's painful. To and continue I'm sorry. To suck. And it's, this is going to be kind of your life for a while. Is that but there, suck? But there will be there good will be days joy ahead. Again. Yeah. There will be joy. With that, if you ever uh, are trying to help a person go through mourning, don't try to preach to them how right you are, how right your doctrine is. Preach to them how right your God is. And recognize where they're at. Because that's one thing Eliphaz failed to do, was to hear Job and to recognize Job's loss and his pain. Instead, he tried to sweep it under the tar carpet and make, him feel, make better. him feel better and try and lift him out of it and point to that distant future that's nobody can know and say, see, that over there is better. You'll get there someday, which is completely unhelpful. So even in the midst of grief and counseling through grief. Seek life. In all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai as we seek life. Shalom.